Hi, I'm Tara. I'm part of the lead team here, and I'm just going to read this scripture today. We are in Isaiah 4, and the verses are 2 through 6. You can follow along in your Bible or on the screens um, or in the app. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of the flaming fire by night. For over the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for the shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm storm and the rain. Thanks, Sarah. This morning, uh, we're continuing in a series called Tried and Truth. And uh, this morning, the message is entitled Last Word, Last Word. And uh, we're kind of uh, headed through a summer series that will encapsulate the first five chapters of Isaiah. And so we find ourselves in chapter four. And uh, as I was uh, preparing for uh, the message this morning, I was reminiscent. Um, I mean, as I was reflecting uh, this morning on the message, I was just reminiscing on uh, the, I think, the journey and the pain of one of the stories I felt compelled to share with you. Um, I had a surgery um, on my right elbow. So if you play baseball or if you're familiar with baseball at all, it's called Tommy John surgery or uh, UCL if you don't care about Tommy John or baseball, um, but it's a, a surgery on a, a ligament on the inside of your elbow. And so I, uh, when I had surgery on it, it was, um, it was one of those things that had worn down quite a bit throughout my life uh, for different reasons, probably a result of baseball and things. And so I was actually on a skiing trip when it snapped and uh, I just kind of came down, it popped the rest of the way. It was fun. I won't go into too much detail, uh, but my elbow was dislocated and uh, there's a, a nerve called the ulnar nerve that runs through like a, almost like a channel on the inside of your arm and that was crushed in the process of my elbow being kind of dislocated. So um, I was in tremendous amount of pain, but I was speaking at a retreat. And so I was like, I think I'm all right. And everybody's like, you sure? I was like, yeah, I just can't like straighten my arm. So I was kind of like, it's kind of weird, right? Uh, or if I reach it out really hard, I can't keep it out there. And so um, we did, uh, the part, of the <laughs> part of the retreat was water baptisms and that did not go well. You know, you put a kid down, you're like, I'm, I can't, I can't pull him back. <laughs> so I hope you make it, kid. <laughs> Good news is the Lord is with you. Um, but uh, I had somebody kind of helping me pull people up. And so I was, I was just in a lot of pain and uh, I didn't realize my elbow was dislocated and found out later that with that dislocation and the compression on that nerve, it was actually sending signals to my brain that my arm had been severed. And so that explains why it hurt a little. Like my brain's like, it's gone. I'm like, no, I swear it's there. Like, I promise it's gone. So uh, I was in, in a lot of pain. They decided to uh, do the surgery. I said recovery was probably going to be about six months or so. I thought, okay, that's no big deal. Um, shortly after uh, the surgery, um, I found out something that I kind of knew. I just didn't realize how much it would implicate into this part of the journey um, is that my body produces a lot of scar tissue. And that did not like 
do well at all with my elbow. So what happened is I could not uh, gain any type of motion for any amount of time. And so I'm giving you all of that backstory to let you know um, there was this probably about 125-pound woman who was my physical therapist, and I think she was demonic, <laughs> or she was somehow empowered by other spirits. I have no idea, but the amount of pain that she inflicted on my body was incredible. Uh, and she would do it in like the kindest way, like with a smile on her face. She's like, this is going to hurt a little. You know, she's like, I'm like, that hurt a lot. <laughs> you said a little, but that was a lot. And there it goes again, you know, and she's like, well, we're, we're developing some scar tissue. So now we can be a little bit more aggressive and like a little ninja she was somehow able to like turn her 125 pounds into like 700 pounds because every time she'd crank on my arm, I was like, oh, and I have a reaction. I don't know how you are. Like some people scream when they're in pain or they cry. I laugh. I have no idea why. So I'm like, oh, wow, that, oh man, that hurts. You're, you're kind of tiny, but wow, that really, oh gosh. <laughs> so we're going to keep doing it then. You know, and uh, it was kind of, that's mostly what my physical therapy appointments uh, sounded like was me laughing and begging her to stop. Um, and she just continued. And you could actually, uh, the, the further we went into the process, um, you could actually hear the tearing of the scar tissue. So I would kind of tell her like, hey, I can hear it. Like you can hear that, right? She's like, yeah, it's a good sign. I'm like, I don't think it's a good sign. I think it's bad. It feels bad. And uh, she's just kind of wailing away at it. And she's like, you're doing great. You're doing great. And I was like, I can't feel my fingers. She's like, that's just the ulnar nerve. That'll happen. And like, now it feels like I'm dipped in water. She's like, yep, it's just nerve pain. I was like, okay, I'm going to kill you. Um, and uh, the thing that was interesting about the whole process is there was so much pain there was so much frustration. It was, actually, it was actually like unnerving even to, like I said, as I was reviewing uh, my, my notes this morning, I was like, oh my gosh, you just go right back to that pain. If you've ever experienced significant pain in your life, it's like if you reflect on it too much, you can just go right back to the emotions and the feelings of it. And what was supposed to be a, a six to nine month journey of uh, rehab actually turned into all of nine months and a little bit more. Um, they had to put me in some contraptions to force it to bend because of the issues I was having. They talked about the potential of another surgery. It was just horrifying. And all the while I'm thinking, am I going to be able to use my right hand again? Like in its full capacity, will I be able to? Spoiler alert, I can. Okay. <laughs> in, case you're, in case you're not looking at me right now. Um, so the, uh, <clears throat> the journey as we went along, I saw a lot of different people come and go over the nine months of, our, of the physical therapy journey. People that would come in, and uh, there was one gentleman in, in particular who uh, was more of a crier than a laugher, and uh, so he would just cry and scream the whole time. It's so awkward. Like, you're in pain, you're on this thing, and this guy's next to you, he's like, <laughs> I'm like, well, he's not doing well. <laughs> so I hear this tearing. Is that normal? Okay, good. And, you know, she's like up on top of me. She's like, I'm like sweet glory. And uh, he started saying things like, I think that's far enough. And the physical therapist is like, no, 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 no. We, we can get a little bit more of it. And he's like, no, I just, I, I don't use my arm that much. I, I really, you know, I'm an older guy. I don't know how much living I have left. He had rotator cuff surgery. And he's just like, I'm, I'm fine. I really think I'm okay. And they're like, no, you can get more motion. And he's like, I don't think I can, you know, just tears streaming down his face and just sort of throwing in the towel on the pain journey. And I found myself um, really kind of to a place of like, am I going to have to settle for some lesser version of mobility? 
Is that, is that what's going to happen? And so I think my physical therapist kind of had the idea that this was happening, that I was kind of settling into this annoyance. And so she started kind of casting vision uh, to me a little bit. In other words, she would say things like this, how are you doing today? I go, good. How are your kids? I'm like, they're doing well. She goes, so do you think you'll want to throw with them someday? You know, baseball, softball? I'm like, yeah. It's like, all right, you ready? You dirtbag. Yeah, like, it's like she's just letting you know, like, hey, just so you know, if you want to do that, let's get started. This is going to hurt, but you want to throw someday, right? And so it was like, oh, there was always some perspective that she would um, kind of put before me so I could endure the pain of that day. <clears throat> and then as we started, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry, um, right into the microphone, like, <clears throat> perfect. If you're on the podcast, you're welcome. The, uh, as we started kind of the weightlifting process, uh, she's like, all right, we're going to start kind of some strengthening. So she gives me, I don't even know what it was, like a quarter pound or something like that. It was like this big, just larger than my hand, and it was pink. And she's like, uh, just kind of bring it out straight like this. And of course, she's like, you know, just bring it out like this and bring it back down. I was like, okay. And she's like, try it with your left hand. I was like, all right. So I put it in my left hand like, like that. She's like, yep, and then straight down. I was like, okay. So I put my hand, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's really hard with this hand. She's like, yeah, that's why we're just starting with this. And so I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. The first day, it wasn't even close. She's like, you're doing well. You're doing well. I hated that little pink weight. <laughs> and I hated that it was pink. I don't know why. I'm not like a sexist or anything, but there was something about the idea that it was pink that was just emasculating, you know? <laughs> She's like, here, here. And she would hand it to me like with two fingers. She's like, here, hold this. I was like, you, I hate you. <laughs> you little ninja from hell. And uh, <clears throat> so... I, uh, I finally got to a place where I could do it. I was like, can we be done with the pink one? And she's like, yeah, you upgrade from the pink one. And she holds up a purple one. <laughs> she's like, do a purple one. I was like, do you intentionally make them this color? She goes, yes, we do. She's like, so they heap shame on you. I was like, all right, great. And so there, there was like this process where we just, I, I couldn't settle for where I was for so many different reasons from the point of casting vision of where it is that I wanted to be to the point where I was discontent with where I was. And the thing that she said over and over again, and she said in the beginning that it was going to sound kind of silly because it's something that we've all heard. She would say, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. I'm like, yeah, no pain, no gain. Sure. But when you're in pain, you're like, maybe I don't want the gain. Can we just be done with the pain? Can we be over the pain already? Can we just get to the gain part? Haven't I had enough of the pain? And so the question I want you to consider as we move through the text this morning is how can I persevere through times of despair and destruction? How can I persevere through times of despair and destruction? I want to submit to you that the only way we can uh, persevere is if our perspective goes beyond our current circumstances. Think about that for a second. The only way we can persevere is if our perspective goes beyond our current circumstances. If we're stuck in the moment, if we're stuck in the now, now is terrible sometimes. And, and maybe you're not in the terrible right now, but you can probably remember it if you spend any amount of time. We've all been there. You see, as humans, Christian or not, and I realize the room is filled with uh, people all across the range of Christianity and even skepticism. But as humans... We live in the reality of now. 
right now. Sometimes in the pain, in the frustration, or in the annoyance of now, we don't consider the journey. That it's a journey. And if we, we can only persevere long enough, we can know sort of what's next. What's coming on the horizon? Where are we headed? I think our ability and our capacity to persevere is directly connected to our ability to understand what's next. You see, because if you don't understand what's next, then you'll just kind of bail on the now. Kind of like the guy with his rotator cuff. Like I could have so easily been like, you know what? I think, I think I'm good. I can move my elbow enough. Until she said, can you throw? Like <laughs> You, I can't stand you. Because she's reminding me of where it is I want to be, of what it is that means a lot to me, interaction with my kids and, and life, where it is that I'm headed. It's bigger than just the right now. Perseverance requires a journey mentality, a journey mentality. And this concept is becoming more and more foreign to us in our society. In our society, we function in immediate gratification, right? Like it or not, it's just the reality of what it is that we do day in and day out. You can blame it on social media, you can blame it on the internet, you can blame it on whatever you want, but the fact is we function in a society that deals with immediate gratification and a right now mentality. And so perseverance can appear impossible or almost antiquated. Why would I persevere? I want something right now. I don't care about the journey. We want what we want, we want it now. In some cases, we work hard. And so we, we should have what we've earned. We, we have an entitlement to what it is that we want right now. And what it is that we deserve, even. It's the way we function. Like it or not. Every single one of us. We want what we want. It's why we pay for gym memberships that we don't use. Right? I don't know what the statistics are. I tried to find them. It's probably just depressing. It's probably not even a statistic uh, because it's so significant. But the number of, of people on an average basis that purchase uh, gym memberships to not use them in comparison to the rest of the world. I feel like the United States is probably off the charts ahead of everybody. Right? It's like, it's what happens around January. Like, you get your gym membership. Yeah, yeah, I got it. Are you going to use it? No, no. And here's the deal, like, it's good intention, and maybe you're like, oh, no, no, I don't do gym memberships, that's not for me, but I am a part of this group that meets on social media, and we hold each other accountable, like, no matter what your group is, whether it's social media or some type of exercise group, it's like, it lasts for like three weeks, where you're like, oh, I had a cheeseburger, and I did seven sit-ups, why haven't I met all my goals yet? I don't understand, it's because we want immediate, immediate results, and when we don't get them, we don't want to put in the work. No pain, no gain. We're like, eh, I'll lose weight next year. I'll just eat a little better. This right now mentality. Maybe that's not your vice. Maybe you still have the first gym membership that you ever purchased. Congratulations to you. America hates you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, the fact is, in our society, we're geared towards the right now mentality. So whether it's, not, whether it's a gym membership or not, it's other areas. It spills over. It started really early on in the 60s, and uh, it started with this idea of fast food. Right? We can get food fast to you. 
as fast as you want it. In fact, we'll bring it out to you on roller skates, which I still kind of long for, for that. How did they think that that would go well? You know, like, let's put a person on wheels. I doubt they'll drop anything. I just, I would have loved to just sit right there and just watch people dump things uh, into people's cars. But anyway, it's a whole other conversation. Uh, right now, if you think about it, it's kind of ridiculous, the, the idea that we pull up to a box, we speak to a box or to a screen, but then we pull up in some cases to a window having received nothing and we hand over money or credit card to them with the promise that at the next window, they're going to give us what it is we asked for. <laughs> It's kind of an interesting concept. And if it's wrong, you see people get really mad, right? Like, listen, you just walked up to a box, you talked into it, you gave them money, and they forgot to give you a French fry? Like, look at all the other things in your bag. Like, just go in and tell them they got it wrong. They're like, you messed this up. They're so angry. Why? Because I ordered something and I want it the way I want it. I want it now. Fast food mentality. It's our fast food society. It goes beyond that. If you're like, oh, I don't eat junk food and I still have my membership, you're still winning. Um, but this is where I think all of uh, society starts to catch up is when we start to talk about this idea of Amazon Prime, right? And when all of a sudden it's like, hey, you know what? I want that. And I haven't spent any time proactively thinking, so I would like it in the next 24 to 48 hours <laughs> outside of my door now. And if Amazon Prime is a little bit late, you're like, what the heck? I paid $13 a month for things to appear on my doorstep when I want it. Now, forget it. They're not going to get any gift for birthday. Because <laughs> even though I had a year to plan for this, I ordered it 48 hours ago, <laughs> and it's not here. This right now, immediate mentality. Hulu, Netflix, right? Binge watching. It's like all of society is just feeding into this idea of like, I want to watch this show right now. I don't want to wait till Thursday at nine. I want to watch it right now on my phone because I don't want to be at my house either. And I don't want commercials. I remember the first time my kids saw a commercial. Like, they're like, wait, what, what is this? And I was like, it's a commercial. Like, wait, you don't know what a commercial is? They're like, just fast forward it. I was like, I can't. It's live TV. And they're like, what? I was like, oh my gosh. Like, this goes way beyond, like, three channels. goes way beyond remote controls. Like, they're like, a commercial? <laughs> they're, like, laughing. I'm like, oh, my goodness. There's this thing called on-demand, right? Isn't that so aptly named? Like, it's perfect, on-demand. It feeds into our desire for now. Like, listen, you demand it, you get it. They're like, I like the sounds of that. Our society is just built around this idea of accommodating our demands immediately. We want what we want, and we definitely want what we think we deserve. And we can laugh about it, we can make light of it, but if we're careful, if we're not careful, this mentality spills over into our theology. It spills over into our theology. This right now mentality starts to affect the way that we approach God, the way that we interact with God. And we think because of our works, because of our intentions, because we're not as bad as the other people we know, that in some way God owes us something. Not only does God owe us something, but he owes it to us now. Why? Well, because I want it. And if I want it now, then I deserve it. At the very least, we deserve to be happy, right? Can't tell you how many times I've heard people talk about this idea of happiness. Like, I just... I just want to be happy, right? And I mean, God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Does he? I mean, 
Is God's goal to make you happy? That's kind of some jacked up theology if you think about it. The God of heaven exists for my happiness. (laughs) What? Maybe you're like, wait, he doesn't? You see, we have this kind of self-centered mentality, this right now mentality, this idea that leans us towards poor theology. You know, we can be happy in this world and on our way to hell. You can be happy and on your way to hell. We can work so hard to, to appease our own desires in an attempt to find heaven on earth. This, this place free of responsibility, this place of rest, this, this heaven on earth that we deserve and we work so hard for it that in the process, we miss the point altogether. And I want to tell you this morning, it's not a new struggle. In fact, the people of Israel were struggling with poor theology, going through the right motions with the wrong motives. In chapter three of Isaiah, right up to chapter four, verse one that we heard last week of Isaiah, it seems that the future is fairly devastating. But then in this morning's passage, things are starting to look promising. Why? Because Israel starts behaving because they finally get it? So all of a sudden they wake up and realize the error of their ways? No, not at all. Because of something entirely different. Verse 2 says, In that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Because of the branch or the shoot of the Lord. That's a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And so I'll read that. Isaiah 11, 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so what we see from this connection is that Isaiah is pointing forward to Jesus. This is a messianic text. Isaiah is talking about Jesus. The reason why things go from a terrifying perspective to a better perspective is because of the coming Messiah. Because of something that God himself is doing. This text shows that the awful and deserving judgment announced against Jerusalem in chapter 3 is not God's last word. It's not God's last word. As God strips away the idols and idolatry, there will be the survivors of Israel. Or some translations say, a holy remnant. And if you're a Christian in the room this morning, you may be tempted to say, that's me. That's what I'm talking about. I am the holy remnant. I am a person that's walking in the grace of God. And although you might be a person walking in the grace of God, you're not the remnant. In fact, we are idolaters. We are people that worship things other than God. We, like Israel, like Israel, assign worth to our comfort, our security, our happiness. So much worth that we leverage our time, our talent, and our treasure towards those things. We worship the created, and then we demand God to intervene on our behalf. Listen, we must come to the ends of ourselves and acknowledge that we deserve judgment, that ultimately we deserve hell. Sounds like a cheery message this morning, doesn't it? You know, like, well, you deserve hell. Sorry. 
But we have to come to the end of ourselves. Otherwise, we get trapped into a poor theological perspective where we just continue to say, I want what I want. I want it now. I want what I deserve. God, you owe it to me. You owe it to me. And so we need to think about what it is that we actually deserve when we start to demand the things that we deserve. And the reality is, as depressing as it sounds, we deserve hell. But that's not God's last word. The same way that it wasn't God's last word for Israel, it's not God's last word over us. You see, it's only in acknowledging what we actually deserve that we begin to understand grace. If you don't understand the depth of the depravity of your own heart and mind, you can never fully understand and walk in the grace that God awards you. You see, if you don't understand the trapping of the world and the judgment that's, that's deserved you, then you'll just sit with this idea of entitlement and be like, but I'm a good person. I deserve to be happy. Come on, God. It's only in the awareness of the brokenness of our own heart and mind and the depravity of our own soul that we come to a place where we can realize the truth of the grace that God, aware, God awards us. Verse 5 says, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assembly a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. It's a pretty amazing verse when you start to connect all the dots of what it is that's happening. We're going to unpack that and connect those dots right now. A cloud by day and a fire by night is a reference to Israel fleeing Egypt. You see, Israel was held captive by the nation of Egypt. And they get to a place where after a, a series of interactions between uh, Moses and um, Pharaoh, there we go, I blanked out, <laughs> and the Pharaoh, uh, that they go back and forth. And after a series of events, Pharaoh finally says, I'm not going to let you go. And so there's this moment, this moment of despair where the people of Israel realize that they're not going anywhere. And Moses tells Pharaoh that that which he has put on the people of, Egypt, uh, people of Israel will be turned towards him. And so that night, the Israelites are instructed to slaughter a blameless lamb, a spotless, blameless lamb, and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the the post and lintels of their doors. And in the middle of the night, the angel of death comes and every place where a lamb was slaughtered, the angel of death passes over. And in the end, uh, I'm really, really making a rather in-depth story, rather brief to continue forward. But as the Israelites are woken that morning by the screams of the people of Egypt, Pharaoh's own first son is found dead. He tells the people of Israel to leave. And so the people of Israel finally leave and they're fleeing and they're set free. And as they start to flee, the Egyptian army is, is so angry over the depth of the death and despair that they've experienced that they decide they're going to tell the people of Israel that they have to return. And so we see a reference of how the people of Israel are moving through the desert in Exodus 13 verse 21, that I'll read to you right now. It says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And so what we see 
in Exodus chapter 13 that Isaiah is referencing is this reality of God leading his people. God's leading his people. But then we see in Exodus chapter 14, something incredible happens. The people of Israel, an entire nation, is up along the side of the Red Sea, and they're incapable of passing. And so as they become incapable of passing, and the people of Egypt are coming in their chariots, and they're angry, and they want revenge, they butt up against the people of Israel, and something incredible happens. The pillar of cloud moves between the people of Israel and the people of Egypt, and God himself protects his people. And so we see this pillar representing not only the ability to, of God to lead us, but also to protect us. And so something incredible kind of happens uh, on the shore of the Red Sea. If you know your Bible at all, uh, the Red Sea parts and the Israelites are able to pass on dry ground. It's a pretty incredible, miraculous thing that took place. What Isaiah is prophesying is that God will now again protect and lead via the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Because of the blameless, spotless son of God who like a lamb was led to slaughter and paid the price for our death, we're able to be set free. But that the story doesn't end there. That God himself actually leads us and protects us if we'll allow him. Listen, the judgment that you and I deserve, Jesus took on himself And awards us grace and forgiveness. The end of that verse says a canopy. It talks about this idea of a canopy. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. In Hebrew, the reference of canopy always denotes a marriage chamber. A marriage covenant. And so what's taking place here is what Isaiah is prophesying is saying, listen, Jesus is going to set you free. He's going to lead you. He's going to protect you. It's the Messiah moving graciously towards his bride, the church, you, me. Listen, security, comfort, happiness, these aren't things to be pursued, but rather They're byproducts of a life lived in proximity to Jesus. See, if you're you're not careful, you you can make something primary that was never intended to be primary. You can pursue the byproduct rather than the source. And we can try so hard to pursue security and comfort and happiness and think, listen, we're doing a good thing. Like, I'm a good parent. I'm a good husband. Like, look how much happiness I'm pursuing. In fact, God, don't I deserve to be happy? I'm such a good person. And all the while, God is saying, don't pursue the byproduct. Pursue me. The climax of Exodus is not the crossing of the Red Sea. You might be tempted to believe that if you've watched any television programs or anything like that. You might think, like, that was God's moment. All of a sudden, and the Red Sea parts, that's incredible. It wasn't God's moment. That's not the climax of Exodus. God did not set the people of Israel free so that he could perform that miracle and they could cross the Red Sea. He set his people free for the moment of God's glory filling the tabernacle. That is the climax of Exodus. That the people of Israel are able to to build a tabernacle and that God himself could come and inhabit his people. God doesn't want your happiness. He wants proximity. Does God want you to be happy? No. He doesn't care. 
He wants proximity to you. He wants relationship. Listen, if you have children in this room, if you are a child, just so you know, that's everybody. (laughs) Happiness should not be the goal of a parent-child relationship, right? Otherwise, it becomes so surfacy. Parents get manipulated. Kids get angry. It's this, this pull, this struggle to be like, are you happy? Are you happy now? No, not now. Here's more stuff. Well, did I do something wrong? I'll go talk to dad. He's such a jerk, you know. It becomes this whole game of happiness. But if the goal, if the goal is relationship, if the goal is proximity to realize that that child is loved, then in moments that they're not happy, they'll turn to you in brokenness and in despair. Say, you love me even in the midst of the pain. Why? Because you know me. And so God himself wants proximity, not something as surfacy as happiness. Verse six says, there will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. You see, at this time, the the Lord was among the people in the tabernacle, as I mentioned, In fact, when they were given instruction on how to create the tabernacle in the Old Testament, there's this space called the Holy of Holies. Ultimately, when they end up in the land that God has promised them, they build a physical tabernacle that's not mobile. And every place that there is a Holy of Holies, there's a veil separating Holy of Holies to the other areas of the tabernacle. When it was built in its physical structure, there's a lot of detail that I can give you. I'll simply say this. It was a thick, thick veil that separated the other areas of the tabernacle to the holies of holies. And the reason why is because God himself would come into the holy of holies and inhabit that place. And so once a year, the high priest, not any priest, but the high priest, would uh, go through a process a cleansing process where he would atone for all the sins of the entire nation of Israel. It was actually a very gory thing. There was a lot of slaughtering of animals, spotless animals, and he was covered with their blood for the purpose of atoning for the sins of a nation. Again, oversimplifying a rather lengthy explanation, but I simply say this, it was such an intense thing that they would tie a rope around his ankle with a bell on it as he would go into the Holy of Holies. And the reason being is they would pull the rope and he would pull it back and jingle the bell to signify that he was still alive. Because if he didn't go through the cleansing process properly, because of the sin that God cannot be in proximity to, he would be struck dead instantly. I wonder who the guy was that was like, we should put a bell on him, (laughs) right? (laughs) He's been in there a while. They pull it out, they're like, ooh. I wonder how long he's been there. Just one of those things where my mind goes. And so the reason why it's important for us to understand this is that as much as God was in proximity, he was still distant. There was still a priest that had to function as an in-between. Because of humanity's sin, God was still distant. But when Jesus died, Scripture tells us something incredible. That as the earth settled, the tabernacle itself was actually split. That the temple was broken. And as it was broken, this veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Signifying that God's presence is now released 
to be in proximity to every single person. Why? Because of what Jesus did. We can now have an accessible shelter in times of despair and destruction. Jesus was destroyed. Jesus was alone. Jesus was broken so that you would never be destroyed alone or broken, that you would realize the fullness of God's love and grace and mercy. Jesus didn't lay down his life so you'd be happy, right? I mean, when you think about how absurd that is, and yet so often we go into that vein of theology like, God, come on, you got to come through here. This is the way I want it to play out. He did not lay down his life so you'd be happy and have an easy life. He died and rose again so that you could be in relationship with the living God. So that we're not avoiding the pain of this life, but in the midst of the pain, we know we're never alone. That God himself walks beside us. That he's a shelter in our time of need. In the midst of the storms and the torrents of life, that God himself would walk us through the valleys. So how can I persevere? Realize who God says that you are. There's what you've tried. There's what it is that you're trying. And there's the truth that God has spoken over you. Don't settle for some ripped off version of your one and only life. Don't be lulled to sleep with the worries and cares of this world. Listen, if it's about accumulating stuff, it's, if it's about getting to retirement, if it's about all these things that matter so much to everybody around us, if it's really about happiness, gosh, that's devastating. What a terrible existence to just struggle and struggle and struggle. But if it's about proximity to Jesus and the byproduct of that is fulfillment in every season of our life, we have a hope. It's good news. God has a plan and purpose for your life. And it's bigger than a car. It's bigger than a house. It's bigger than a degree. It's bigger than a spouse. It's bigger than retirement. It's bigger than a raise. It's bigger than all these silly things that we devote so much of our time and talent towards. Are you blinded by your circumstances? I don't know what season of life you're in. Maybe you're in a good place. Maybe you're not. Regardless of whether or not you're in a good place or a difficult space, we know eventually every single one of us ends up in the difficulty. And in those moments, are you blinded by the circumstances? Are you tempted to say, you know what? I think this is good enough. This is too painful. Let's just call it even right here. Like, I don't know if you're a ninja sent from hell <laughs> or what, but I am, I am done with the pain of this. I call uncle. I'm tapping out. I don't want to pick up the pink one anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm pushing away from the table. You win and everybody else that seems to be against me. How often do we find ourselves in those moments in life, whether it's a workplace, in our family, in our marriage, whatever it might be, and we settle for a lesser version of our lives because we forget it's a journey. This is a journey. And if you let him, God will lead you. He'll lead you and guide you, but we need to have a perspective beyond our current circumstances. Maybe you don't know 
Or maybe you've forgotten who God says you are. Because of Jesus, because of what he has done, you're a child of the living God. So you may not feel valuable. You may have had lies spoken over you. You may speak lies to yourself about who you are and what you deserve. But regardless of what it is that has been spoken over you and what it is that you speak over yourself, would you allow just for a moment the reality of who God says that you are to create vision for your life? To realize that in some way when you've pushed away or you've thrown in the towel that you're settling for a lesser version of your one and only life. It's so much bigger than simple happiness. And the irony of it all is that if we lean into the proximity with a living God who calls us child, the byproduct of that is joy and happiness and a sense of belonging. The thing that we're in pursuit of is only accessible when we surrender to who God says we are. And so in a lot of ways, we find ourselves exactly where the Israelites were. The difference is that was a prophecy of something to come. And we live in the reality that Jesus has come and paid the price so that we can walk in the freedom and joy available to us. We say often, weekly, that the text requires something of us. And so this morning, I want to challenge you. As you leave this place, I want you to consider this application question. What will I address in my life in light of how God views me? What will I address in my life in light of how God views me? Not how you view yourself, not how your parents view you, not how your boss views you, and how God views you. That's the game changer. Maybe this morning for you, the application is, listen, if God views me as worth something, If God views me as child, then then I want to surrender my life to him. And so for some of you this morning, maybe this looks like laying your life down and saying, Lord, I want you to be the Lord and leader of my life. I'm done trying to fight and struggle and push through the pain and the difficulty of this life. I, I want you to lead and direct me. If that's you this morning, it's as simple as praying a prayer in the quietness of your seat. Just say, Lord, I surrender to you. I know you died for me. And so I pray that you'd forgive me of my sins. Come and be the Lord and leader of my life. It's that simple this morning. For others of us in this place, if you've crossed that line of faith, maybe it's time to evaluate the lies that you're functioning in and replace those lies with truth. If God views you as a child of God, a child, his child, with value and purpose. And there's a goal and a mission for your one and only life. And it's bigger than just being a provider. It's bigger than just retirement. It's bigger than just all the things I've mentioned, the stuff that we strive for. Then what lie are you believing? How can you replace that with truth? What do you need to address? For others of you this morning, maybe you're in a place where you say, listen, I recenter my heart as often as I can with truth over the lies I tend to believe. To you this morning, I want to challenge you what it looks like for you to live on mission. 
If you're, if you're functioning in the truth that God has spoken over your life every day, day in and day out, and it's setting you free daily, then how is it that you're leveraging your time, your talent, and your treasure towards the furtherance of God's mission for your life? I don't pretend to know the answers to those questions. I'm simply saying that the text requires something from every single one of us. And so to leave this place simply sitting through a church service, well, there's better things to do with your life, honestly. But if this is about an encounter with the living God that challenges us to say, I'm going to live differently because of who God says I am, because of the way he views me, and that's worth all the time in the world. So I want to challenge you this morning. If you would, just close your eyes or bow your heads just so that you're not distracted this morning as we go into a response time. We want to provide time for us to to just encounter whatever it is that the Lord is speaking to us. And so as the worship team comes, we'll respond in song. But even beyond that, I want you to consider, I want you to consider what it is that you need to address in your life in light of how God views you. What is it that needs to be done? So often come and and hear the word, but how often do we act on what it is that the Lord's leading us to do? I'm not talking about effort. My kids don't, don't have to behave better for me to love them. They just have to walk in their identity as my child. And as they do that and increase proximity to me, it's incredible how they light up. Not because I'm a great father, but because I'm their father. And that's what God wants from you this morning. Proximity. God, will you, will you speak vision into my life? Will you give me perspective for the journey so that I can persevere the pain of today? Not alone, not in isolation, but because of who you are. You're walking me through it, Lord. You'll never leave me. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We surrender to you. We ask that you would give us perspective. You'd help us realize that what it is that that we want, the right now of our lives. Father, would you expand our perspective? that we could see this life as a journey, that we can see your faithfulness, we can see your presence, that we would rest in your presence. God, would you, would you give us rest this morning? Your word says that you dance over us. Lord, would you dance over us this morning? Would, would you inhabit the praises of your people as we surrender the worries and the cares of this world and we respond to the truth of your word? Would you be present and speak truth into our lives for your glory and our joy?